Our last time together, we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob. We're going to be looking at the life of Jacob. And uh, we've, we've been talking about unity and how we must be united as the people of God. We've talked about being united around a, a, a common message, being united under a common authority. We've talked about being united around a common community twice. And now we're going to talk about being united around a common posture. Being united around a common posture. And we really think of this as we enter into Holy Week. As we think about Palm Sunday, as Jesus comes into uh, Jerusalem and people are celebrating him as the king. And then he ends up hanging on a piece of wood just days later. And so how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of what Jesus is doing and how people perceived him? And I think that people didn't understand that Jesus came to be, uh, at least initially, a king of weakness. A king who displayed weakness, who, who ministered in weakness. And really throughout his whole life he did this, all the way up until his resurrection. Um, and what, what I really want us to look at are places in life where Jacob is weak, but God shows up and is powerful. So flip with me. Uh, you guys can go to Genesis 28, verse 10. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll start off in 2741. And I'll read that and then I'll jump to where you guys are. If that's all right. All righty. You guys there? Cool. And, it, and it's up on the screen. I'm still like, I'm still um, old school. I, I, you know, preachers have to wait till people open up their Bibles. Like, bro, we have apps and screens now. But, um, all right. Genesis chapter 27, verse 41. Um, okay, I'll read from the, I, I like the NLT for narrative sometimes, but I'll, uh, I'll do the ESV. I have the ESV up here as well. All right, chapter 27, starting at verse 41, and then I'll jump to where you are. So remember, Jacob had just stolen the birthright and blessing from uh, his older brother Esau. That's what's happening here. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. All right, jump into where you guys are. Uh, Chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached down to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Then you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, 
Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on, t- on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for who you are. Lord, thank you for the fact that you are king. Jesus, you invite your church to embrace weakness and to lean on you and depend on you when we're desperate. And so, Holy Spirit, right now, uh, I admit that I need to lean on you. That I'm weak. My frame is of dust. Lord, I cannot do anything apart from you. Especially preaching. So, Lord, I pray that you would help me, you would strengthen me, that I might serve your people well. And, Lord, I ask that you would move in this place. Lord, I pray that you would have your way. Lord, I pray that we would become more and more like you as a result of your spirit meeting us in the preaching of the word. Lord, we love you. Amen. All right. Do you have a place where you feel really close to God? You know, maybe, uh, you know, just, 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 just think about it for a second. Where is this place for you? Maybe it's in the mountains. When you get around mountains, you're like, man, I just really feel a sense of closeness to God. Maybe it's water. If, if you're like me and you grew up in a beach town, maybe you just get around water at night and you just see a full moon over the waves and you hear the waves crashing and you're just aware of who God is. Uh, maybe for some of you, is under a night sky without any light pollution. You're looking over the, 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 uh, the canopy of the sky, and you're just looking at how vast the universe is. Oftentimes, these places have something to do with tranquility or have something to do with how vast God is and how little we are. But what if I told you that there is a place that many of us likely didn't think of. It's on an island in the middle of nowhere. It's always cloudy, and when it rains, it pours. When it isn't cloudy, the sun shines and gives scorching heat. There's little food, scarce water, no scenic views, and predators all around. But this place is a special place, and we are closer to God here than any other place. What is this place called? This place is called weakness. In this place, we are desperate, powerless, hurting, and vulnerable. 
But this is the place where God dwells. And the main point I want to drive home this morning is that God dwells in our weakest moments. God dwells in our weakest moments. And what I want to do is really Jacob's life, one of the common reoccurring themes or motifs or places is Bethel. The, this place always pops up. Well, not always. It often pops up in Jacob's life, especially when he's weak. Jacob's always weak, but especially when he feels his weakness. I really want us to look at the different places that Bethel pops up and see what God has to teach us about this place called weakness. So uh, in our passage this morning, Jacob has just received the blessing and birthright that belonged to his older brother Esau. And his older, his older brother Esau was strong and ferocious. The, the Bible kind of paints Jacob as like a, a homebody. And he kind of likes to hang out in the, in the tents. And Esau's like this, you know, jacked bodybuilder type who just is covered with hair. And his, and his skin is just, you know, red from, I don't know, I guess all the blood running through his muscles. I don't know, I probably need to look at a background commentary to figure out why Esau was red. But I'm assuming that's why. Arnold Schwarzenegger type. And uh, basically, Jacob uh, stole the blessing. And Esau wants to kill Jacob for it. Uh, so Rebecca, Jacob's mother, sends Jacob to his uncle's house to hide. And this is all a part of God's plan. When they were born, they were, they, 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 they were born at the same time. And God prophesied over the, the children and said that the older shall serve the younger. Esau shall serve Jacob. And I think Rebecca kind of knew this. And Rebecca was the one behind the scenes who set up the whole switcheroo. Uh, Jacob kind of uh, wearing Esau's clothes and kind of uh, their, their father was pretty much close to blind so he couldn't tell the difference and the father blessed Jacob instead of Esau so Rebecca's like Jacob get out of here you, you like your brother's gonna kill you uh come back when things have kind of calmed down a little bit his home was no longer safe so now he is by himself he's not his brother Esau you know, remember, he's a homebody, and this might be the first time he's ever just been really out on his own for the first time. I imagine he would maybe, I don't know if he had food, water, like sufficient clothing. He is vulnerable. He is desperate. He is powerless, and he is hurting. He is away from his family, and his brother wants to kill him. And so Jacob lies down to sleep. On a rock. Isn't that intense? That's my favorite part about this whole story. It's like, Jacob, how do you sleep on a rock? Maybe, maybe, maybe that was just common back then. But he laid down to sleep alone, and he had a vision of a set of stairs leading to heaven. Now, when you think of stairs or when the Bible says a ladder, don't think, you know, like a construction ladder. Think, so back then, temples, so you, urban centers were centered around the temple. And in the kind of in the middle of urban centers, you had um, this kind of like pyramid type structure with stairs going up to heaven and this was the place in ancient near eastern cultures where uh, god met with the people that's why the temples were always on mountains that's why it's mount zion and uh, mount sinai mount horeb right because the the the, the, the these heights were places where uh kind of literally in some ways but also symbolically heaven touched earth and so Jacob is sleeping, and he sees a kind of like this, this temple stair-like thing, and he sees angels going up and down on it. He's kind of 
sleeping at the portal between heaven and earth. And God comes down to Jacob and, and, and says to Jacob all these amazing promises, the same promises that his grandfather had and the same promises that his father had. And God is like, I'm going to bless you. Look all around you, north, south, east, and west. All this is going to be yours. He's like, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to fulfill all these promises to you. Imagine how intense this was for Jacob. Here he is. He is probably the weakest person on the face of the earth for like a 10-mile radius maybe, maybe more than that. And here comes God coming down and telling Jacob all of the mighty and amazing things that he's going to do. And so Jacob wakes up and he's like, whoa, God was in this place and I didn't even know it. And he was scared because he had just encountered God. And so he names the place Bethel. Bethel uh, means the house of God. Beth is house and El is God. He names it Bethel. Family, there was nothing particularly special about that patch of dirt that Jacob laid down on. And there was nothing particularly special, especially with that rock that he laid down on. <laughs> there was nothing special about that place other than it was his place of weakness. It was his place of weakness. And this is the place in Jacob's life where the Lord dwelled. The Lord dwelled here. And family, this is the place in your life where the Lord dwells. This is the place in your life where the Lord dwells. But here's the problem. Don't we oft, oftentimes waste these moments of weakness, these moments of feeling desperate and powerless? Uh, in these moments, instead of seeking God, we rebel against God. Instead of pressing deeper into community, we isolate ourselves. And we make a bad situation even worse. And so... Again, like I said, from Jacob's life, I, I want to look at other places where Bethel pops up. And I want to look at how God meets Jacob in his desperate situations. So I want to look at two different uh, other places. So I, I want to look at a situation in Jacob's life where the powerful in his life tried to exploit him. The powerful tried to exploit him. And this means that God dwells in your weakest moments even when the powerful tried to exploit you. God dwells in your weakest moments, even when the powerful try to exploit you. And we see this in Genesis chapter 31, uh, verses 10 through 13. So, long story short, Jacob, he's, run, he's on the run. He gets his vision from God. And then he makes it to his uncle Laban's house. Uh, and he basically ends up marrying his two daughters, Leah. And so, Jacob ended up working for Laban for 20 years. And all throughout these 20 years... He finds out how shady his uncle is. His uncle is kind of a trickster just like he is. You know, even with the, ma with the marriage, Jacob, when he goes, gets to his uncle's kind of land, he sees Rachel and he falls in love with her immediately. And he goes to his uncle and uh, he's like, man, can you please, I, I want to have her hand in marriage. And the uncle says, yeah, you got to work for me for seven years. Uh, because, you know, Jacob was poor. He had nothing, literally nothing. He didn't have anything to give for her hand in marriage. And so he works those seven years. And then um, when he goes in, so, so back in that day, like really kind of like um, uh, 
intercourse was really the way that you kind of solidified the marriage, and I guess it is now, but is, isn't as culturally as culturally pre- prevalent. So he's about to kind of like solidify the marriage. He's made the marriage contract. He's going to go consummate the marriage, and then he wakes up the next morning, and he's like, oh, this isn't the right person. This isn't Rachel. It was Leah, Rachel's sister. Um, and so then uh, he's like, Laban, you tricked me. He's like, I, uh, I wanted to marry Rachel. I thought we had a deal. And he's like, yeah, we don't do that here. Uh, the, the older the older woman has to get married first where we're where we're from, and and he's like and Jacob's like okay well I'll work another seven years for Rachel and so he marries Rachel he didn't have to wait another seven years to marry he marries her on the front end of that seven years but uh, Jacob gets uh, uh, Laban gets Jacob for another seven years and eventually he's working for Laban for twenty years and all the whole time uh, Laban is being shady cheating Jacob of his wages so now back then they didn't necessarily pay you with. Uh, bills or money like uh animals and goods were how you paid people and they were pastoralists meaning they would take care of sheep and and goats and uh cattle and 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 things like that and so uh Jacob, he has a bunch of sons, and Jacob wants to go back home now to start a life on his own because he's had success, he's wealthy, he's got his 12 sons, he's got um, his, his family set up. But Jacob wanted to, uh, but Laban wanted to keep Jacob around because Jacob's relationship with God had brought Laban great wealth. The flocks were thriving, the crops were growing. You know, I'm just imagining, I don't, I don't actually know what's happening. But I imagine this was like everything was going great. And so Laban says, hey, I want you to stay, name your price. And Jacob says, hey, so essentially how it worked is that, you know, each person had different flocks they were kind of overseeing and they would have deals set up to where, you know, certain things were are my own uh, sheep and lambs and goats and such. And so basically Jacob says, my wages are the streaked, speckled and spotted in the flock. When you, when, when you see those, you'll know those are mine. There'll be no confusion. You can't cheat me. You can't, you, can't, you, you can't do shady things to me. It's obvious what my wages are. But regardless, um, Jacob, uh, Laban and his sons took all the streaked, speckled, and spotted lambs out of Jacob's care and put them into other herds so that Jacob wouldn't have any wages. So that, so that none of the streaks, speckled, and spotted lambs would made and, or that he would just wouldn't have any in his flock. And, but, but here's the, but here's the uh, funny thing. God still looks out for Jacob. Uh, so eventually Jacob went to his wives, and Laban kind of also was shady towards them as well, his own daughters. They, they were kind of discontent. And he told them, hey, we need to leave. And before that, even still, God was blessing him, like I said. And check this out in, verse, in chapter 31, verse 10, it says. Um, I don't think it's up here on the screen. I'll just read it for you guys. This is the NLT. One time during the mating season, I had a dream and saw that the male goats mating with the females were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then in my dream, the angel of God said to me, Jacob. And I replied, yes, here I am. The angel said, look up. And you will see that only the streaked, speckled, and spotted males are mating with the females of your flock. For I have seen how Laban has treated you. I'm the God who appeared to you at Bethel, the place where you anointed the pillar of stone and made your vow to me. Now get ready and leave this country and return to the land of your birth. 
So basically, kind of hints at what was happening. They tried to cheat Jacob of his wages, but uh, God had apparently given Jacob some type of like divine means to change the color of the flocks. And so, kind of like as the the flock would eat and 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 and, and made and drink and do and, and do whatever flocks do. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, uh, Jacob like. I'm, I, I actually have to. I'm going off of memory a little bit. I have to go back and review the story. So, so, so you guys go back and review this story. Uh, but basically, Jacob puts like certain types of objects in front of the lambs, and as they view the object and mate, like I guess they're they they they, they gave birth to a uh, new lamb with streaked, speckled, and spotted fur. That's that's one of the strangest stories in the Bible. God, basically, all we got to know is God was looking out for Jacob. <laughs> Um, and so Jacob, he is getting wealthy and Laban and his sons are getting even more angry. They're like, we thought we cheated this guy. How does he, how is he still taking over all of our wealth? And so God basically says, Hey, I've looked out for you. It's time for you to go. He's He reminds him. He says, I'm the God who appeared to you at Bethel. Remember who I am. I'm the God who dwells in your weakness. And so Here's the thing. They bolt without even telling Laban. They're like, hey, guys, let's, let's, let's sneak out and go. And so they take all the wealth and they take all their, their servants and, and the, the grandchildren. And Laban is angry. So Laban, he's like, he's getting all his people together. He's like, come on, guys, let's roll. We, we got to overtake them. And I imagine Laban is hot. He's angry. He doesn't even know what he's about to do. And uh, they're, they're in hot pursuit of Jacob and his family. Now, this is a scary situation because Jacob didn't even say goodbye. And, you know, Laban is kind of kind of shady anyway. So we don't know what's about to happen when they meet. Um, Jacob is always on the run. His story is a little funny. Um, It's like, Jacob, why are you always on the run? But uh, verse 29, basically Laban gets to Jacob and Laban is basically like, hey, look, um, why'd you leave? You could have at least said bye. Um, but, and, but, and then Laban says this to Jacob in verse 29. He said, I could destroy you, but the God of your father appeared to me last night and warned me, leave Jacob alone. Isn't that powerful? Jacob is running for his life. He doesn't know if he's going to survive. God is working behind the scenes, and he pulls up to Laban, and God says, if you touch him, I'm going to hurt. No, I, God didn't say that. But that's essentially... <laughs> That's, that's essentially the effect. God's like, I'm going to hurt you if you hurt him. Leave him alone. Family, this is what God is like with his people. Those who, the, to those who bless us, they shall be blessed. And those who curse us, they shall be cursed. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the God of Bethel dwells in our weakest moments, even as the powerful seek to exploit us. And some of the weakest moments in our lives are when people more powerful than us or in more authority than us or more influence or more who have more social capital than us. Or maybe it's people who are on this on the um, on the inside of society, like who, who maybe see Christians as other. Some of the weakest moments in our lives are when these people try to harm us. It could even be the evil one himself just putting temptation around us on every side. It could be maybe when we encounter just discrimination or prejudice for whatever reason in our workplace or just out and about. It could be when people in authority like our parents or professors or 
or um, school teachers or coaches, they're trying to exploit us and they're trying to manipulate us. It could be we have been physically and emotionally abused and those people are seeking to torment us. But it is in these moments where God, like Jacob, is protecting us in ways that we can't even see. God still sees us, and these moments does not mean that God has left us. His promises still stand, and he is still for us. In these moments, God can seem really far away, but in fact, these places are your Bethel. The place where God dwells with you. And he will fulfill his promises to you no matter what. And secondly, I want to look at um, God dwells in your weakest moments even when the powerful surround you. God dwells in your weakest moments even when the powerful surround you. And I was, as, I'm, as I'm reading this point, you know, really we see this in the Psalms oftentimes, don't we? We see this all the times in the psalm when David is singing about, you know, my enemies surround me and, oh, Lord, I need you to strike them on the cheek so they could so they could leave me alone. And your your glory and your name can be exalted. Right. Uh, we, we see it in our hymns that the Lord is going to defeat his enemies. And we see this in Jacob's life. So sometimes so, so sometime later, uh, Jacob, he settles in Shechem and the prince of Shechem, whose name is also Shechem, uh, Basically, took advantage of Jacob's daughter, Dina. And uh, Shechem, uh, well, basically, the Shechem's father and Shechem come. They, they know what, uh, basically, the dad knows what his son Shechem has done. He knows he's wrong. And he begged Jacob and his sons for her hand in marriage, whatever the price was. So Dina's brothers, which were the, the, the 12 heads of the tribe of Jacob, they were furious. But they said, you know what? We're going to come up with a plan. So they said, you know what? All right. Our sister will marry you and we'll merge families with you. But one thing has to happen first. You have to be circumcised. And then once you're circumcised, we can join families. And so I imagine Shechem is just really excited. And he's like, yes, okay. He goes back to the town. And they all get circumcised. And so when all of the men are resting from the circumcision procedure, Jacob's sons go and kill them all as, as revenge for, for taking advantage of their sister. And so they come back and Jacob looks at what has happened, how they have wiped out a whole town. And Jacob is now back in the place of weakness. Jacob says to his sons, you have ruined me. You've made me stink among all the people of this land, among all the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are so few that they will join forces and crush us. I will be ruined and my entire household will be wiped out. So uh, Jacob is angry with his sons for doing this. These, the, 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 there's, there's many situations in, in the Bible where you're like, you know what, I, like, th- this is a very complex situation Um, what's happening here morally. Uh, But at the end of the day, we see that who's in the right or the wrong, Jacob is back in the place of weakness. Jacob is back in the place of weakness. But here's the thing. We see Bethel come up again. God told Jacob to go back to Bethel and live there. 
God told Jacob to go back to Bethel and live there. He said this in chapter 35, verse 2. Um, so Jacob, the Bible says this. So Jacob told everyone in his household, get rid of all your pagan idols, purify yourselves, and put on clean clothing. We are now going to Bethel, where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He has been with me wherever I have gone. And so it says they started going out to Bethel. And in verse 5, it says, as they set out, check this out, this is powerful. As they set out, a terror from God spread over the people in all the towns of that area. So no one attacked Jacob's family. Eventually, Jacob and his household arrived at Luz, also called Bethel, in Canaan. Jacob built an altar there and named the place El Bethel, which means the God of Bethel. Because God had appeared to him there when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. Isn't this powerful? Imagine you're Jacob. You think you're going to die just like your sons just wiped out a whole kind of town. Um, you think that the people around you are going to wipe you out. You're like, we're over with, we're done, we're dying. The Bible actually, we, you know, we're so familiar with these Bible stories, but the Bible actually has a lot of near-death moments that happen, and we ought to feel the weight of that. Jacob really believes that he is going to be killed. And as he's running, I don't even know if Jacob knows this. There's no indication that God ever told Jacob what really happened behind the scenes. But the Bible tells us that God caused a terror to fall on all of the people around them as they were fleeing. Like, think about this picture. Here's this, here's this man and his, and his people running, and they're desperate, and they have adrenaline pumping, and they think they're going to die, and they don't know everyone around them is scared of them. Jacob's scared of, uh, of, of the people, but the people are terrified of them because of who their God is. And this is what it looks like to be in a moment of weakness and have the God of Bethel with you. God dwells in your weakness, even as powerful people surround you. It could be that you are in what seems like a lose-lose situation and your back is against the wall, and you don't know what it looks like to follow Jesus with so much opposition around you. It could be that you feel like you have no escape from a hostile environment. You feel like you are withering away, and you don't know how much longer you can take it. It could be that you're stuck in a house, and everyone in your family is toxic, and you are wondering, how can our household get back together? It could be that you are working at a job where everyone seeks to manipulate you, people are shady, and they're putting pressure on you to cut corners. But it's in these moments where God can seem really far away, but in that place, God is your Bethel. That place is your Bethel. That place is called weakness. And it's the place where God dwells. And he will fulfill his promises to you no matter what. He is with you. So family, what do we do with this? This posture of weakness shapes the Christian life. The Christian life has a, um, what's the right word? The Christian life is, is an oxymoron. We're, we're, we're weak, powerful. <laughs> we're powerful and weak at the same time. And in our weakness, it is when the power of God shows up. Jacob, I don't even know if he had a powerful moment his whole life. Maybe the only powerful moment was when he, there's this moment, there's this cool moment. I, you know, I, I, I got to give Jacob props. There's this cool moment where he wrestles God um, and he, he kind of wins. God lets him win. 
but it almost doesn't count because he walks away. He like dislocated his hip kind of like <laughs> during the during the wrestling match. But that was the closest moment that Jacob had to like a really glorious, you know, uh, time. Jacob was the founder of the people of God. His name was changed to Israel. Um, uh, like this, this is a powerful name. He got this name after he wrestled with God. Uh, because he's one who, who fought with God and he was victorious. And the, the people of God is named after him. But there really wasn't a moment of his life where he was the hero, quote unquote. He was in and if he wasn't coming out of a desperate moment, he was going into a desperate moment. If he didn't know, if, if he wasn't staring death in the face, uh, he was due for another appointment very shortly after that. Jacob lived a life of weakness, but he, because of that, because of his God and the promises of God towards him, he also lived a life of power, and he saw God's promises fulfilled to him. And so, family, what do we do with this? Like the Apostle Paul said, we boast in our weaknesses. We boast in our weaknesses. Boast is, is a fancy uh, word of, uh, of saying like we... we um, we brag or we exult in our weaknesses. And we are not to waste those moments of insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles as we are walking with Jesus. Why? Because it is during these moments where we feel uh, desperate and, and powerless and vulnerable that God dwells. Apostle Paul says this, Three times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you. So, so the Apostle Paul is talking about a thorn in the flesh, this thing that was afflicting him. We don't know what it was. Um, but basically, Paul was hurting. And he, and he is begging the Lord to take it away. And when he says three times, that's figurative. He didn't just ask God three times and then quit. He's basically saying, I asked the Lord over and over and over and over again. I, I prayed to the Lord all the time. And I asked him over and over again to take this thing away. And each time, God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. This is the NLT. So now I am glad, the Apostle Paul says this, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do not waste those moments of weakness because this is what... Um, God uses to display and show off his power. We see over and over again throughout the Bible that God doesn't like to use strong people. If you think you're strong, if you have pride in your own strength, your own ability, if you're um, aligned with the world and the world's power and the world's connections and the world's uh, sources of influence, God really is kind of like, mm, I kind of want something where it's a little weaker. So I can show off my power. And so that's why from cover to cover of the Bible, you see this over and over again. It's almost a little weird. It's, you know, it's like, God, can you pick someone powerful for once? You know, think about Abram. He says, hey, Abram, I'm calling you to myself. But, oh, by the way, you need to actually be a stranger in a foreign place where everyone around you is more powerful than you. And then, oh, by the way, several verses later, I'm going to send a famine where you have to go to Egypt 
and you're going to be scared for your life. Welcome to life with me, Abraham. <laughs> right? And then you have Isaac, who is, has the same thing. He's beefing most of his life with Abimelech, and they're, they're arguing over wells. And he, does this, he experiences the same thing in Egypt, where he feels like where he's scared for his life. And then you think about Jacob over and over again. He's in trouble. And then you think about where they end up, uh, Joseph's life, and, and then and he, he ends up becoming a slave. And then you think about Israel, they end up becoming slaves, and then there are these wanderers in the wilderness. And God is always choosing the least likely people because he wants it to be clear that it was him who did it. He wants to glorify himself and his power and his kindness and his goodness and his greatness in our stumbling lives. And this is the beautiful thing about God. Wouldn't it be overwhelming if God was like, you know what? I'm only going to use people who have it all together. I'm only going to use people where it makes sense that they're going to win. I'm only going to use people who are powerful all by themselves. They kind of got to work their way up and, and get in the, you know, the gym of life and, and get, get their weight up and get strong and good at life before I'll mess with them. Right? Wouldn't that be overwhelming? Like, man, I got I to get to a certain level before God will even use me. But this is good news for us because we bring nothing to our relationship with God. We bring literally nothing. I mean, you know, of course, of course, God has created us in his image. And when there's beautiful things that God has given us, even God has given those things uh, already. So what does it actually look like to walk in weakness? You know, because, you know, oftentimes we, we use this like spiritual language Oh, you know what? I'm just walking in weakness or I'm just depending on the Lord or I'm trusting in the Lord. But what does that actually look like in real life and real time? I think this looks like taking the next step even when you don't know if you have the strength to take it. It looks like saying, Lord, I don't even know if I can lift my proverbial leg leg up in life to take the next step of life. But, Lord, I'm going to keep serving. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep walking by your word. I'm going to keep following you. I'm not going to give up. When you are weak, pray more, not less. When you are weak, embrace Christian community and not isolation. When you're weak, receive God's word and not the devil's lies. When you're weak, bless those who persecute you instead of cursing. When you're weak, forgive those who have wronged you instead of seeking revenge. When you're weak, give thanks instead of complaining and do good to, and do good to God and to people and not evil. When you're weak, want, run from temptation and not towards it. When you're weak, persevere even when you feel like giving up. This is what it looks like to walk in God's power. Day by day, you see God providing the next step. Some of us may be thinking, you know what, how can I know that God's really going to be there for me? You know, throughout my whole life, I've depended on people or I've wanted people to show up. But really, I'm not sure if God is going to show up in my moment of weakness. I really, it, we might be thinking, it is really hard for me to trust God in my moment of weakness. And that's real. Uh, just when, when we're going through things and we know that God is in control over it, that he is allowing it to happen or it, it, it is some kind of way aware of it. It's like, God, why are you letting this happen? How can I trust you? 
Imagine Jacob might might have been tempted to believe, God, why am I always facing death in the face? <laughs> Aren't you with me? Aren't you the God who uh, I was sleeping at, uh, uh, who was with me when I was sleeping at heaven's gateways? And then also some of us might be thinking, you know what? I've been so bad and I've been so sinful. I don't even deserve for God to come and meet me in my weakness. I just need to just be weak, period. God can just leave me here. I've, I've messed up too bad. But family, we know that God will never leave us nor forsake us because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. In spite of our weakness, in spite of our temptations to doubt him, in spite of our sin. If you have Jesus, you have the one who is himself the gateway of heaven. Jesus said to one of his disciples, he said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Isn't that powerful? You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, I am the true and better Bethel. I am the gateway to the heavenly realms. Jesus is saying, the, uh, Bethel has become a human. He's like, I myself am the place where God dwells. If you belong to Jesus, you can be certain that God dwells with you in your weakness because Jesus himself dwells with you. And if you have Jesus, you are just like Jacob, that whenever you walk, whenever you, wherever you go, wherever you sleep, you are sleeping at the gateway between heaven and earth. Because of our sins, God would be right to use our moments of weakness as punishment for us. But God doesn't do this because Jesus died on the cross for those sins. Here's the thing. God was far away from Jesus in his weakest moment so that God can be close to you and yours. This is what the cross did for you. See, here's, here's the beautiful thing. When Jesus died, Bethel was hanging on a cross. And this imagery of Jesus hanging on the cross, of Bethel hanging on the cross, is in one image, the summary of this whole message. The same place where you experience the cross, in other words, where you experience suffering, sacrifice, and vulnerability, this is the same place where you experience the presence and salvation of God. Jesus is perfectly able to be your Bethel because he knows what it is like to be in a weak moment. He can relate to you even now in every single way because he says, I know what it is to be well acquainted with weakness. This is one of the whole reasons why Jesus became a human. You know, it, 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 isn't this beautiful? Jesus knew that he would want to walk with generation by generation in sympathy and compassion and mercy. And so he said, in order to do that, I have to live as a human being. There were many reasons why Jesus lived a full life. You know, he lived, he lived you know, in, into his 30s. Um, I guess maybe technically, uh, uh, maybe God could have, probably not, but maybe God could have set it up where Jesus died earlier or could have, you know, died as a teenager for our sins. But Jesus was like, no, I'm going to live a full life so I know what it's like to be just like them. I know what it's like to be a child. I know what it's like to be a teenager. I know what it's like to be an adult. Jesus went through, the Bible tells us that everything you have faced, Jesus knows except sin. 
he knows your weaknesses and he did it to sympathize with you. I don't know, maybe it's just me. When I go through pain and can sympathize with somebody, it was on accident. <laughs> it's because I did not choose to go through that pain. But when Jesus goes through pain, he's the only person who I know who has gone through pain intentionally so that he can sympathize with someone. Jesus did this in his life of weakness and in his weakest moment on the cross. But his resurrection from the dead lets us know that weakness is not the last word in the Christian life. Always in those moments of weakness is where God's power shines the brightest. And the weakest moment in Jesus' life was the most powerful moment in his life three days later. He got up from the grave. He defeated death. He broke the power of death over us. He overcame all of the evil principalities and authorities that tried to crush him. Every nation, uh, uh, every people group, the nations and the Jews uh, crushed him, but he overcame them. Where they said, you are condemned, you are dead, you are far away from God. God spoke over Jesus and he said, this is my son. I love him. He is righteous. In this place where you all are saying weakness, I am saying power. I'm saying name above every name. I'm saying king of kings and lord of lords. I'm saying the son of man who will be coming on the clouds. Christian, this is the pattern of the Christian life. Those moments of, of, of your cross where you suffer, where you're putting sin to death, are those moments where God is working resurrection life. Where God is bringing you to life. He's renewing you in ways that are hard to see and feel sometimes. But God is working this in our lives through the Holy Spirit. He's bringing life out of dead and dark situations. So family, God dwells in your weakest moments. Even when the powerful exploit you. Even when the powerful surrounds you. And you can be sure that God is with you because of the work of Jesus on your behalf. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the ways that you have loved us so well. Lord, you have been good. Lord, so often when we go through weakness, it's really hard to believe that you're with us. It's really hard to believe that you're for us. And so, God, I pray that you would strengthen us. God, I pray that you would show us that you love us. That you're for us. That these, these moments are moments where you, the God of Bethel, shows up. So, God, I pray that we wouldn't waste those moments where we're in pain or we're being persecuted or we're distressed. Lord, these things in themselves are not good. These are bad situations. They are painful. Uh, they are often done by evil people and at the hands of evil people. But Lord, we know that in your sovereignty, you are doing good things even in the midst of all of that. Lord, we thank you that you can, are powerful enough to do that and good enough to do that. And so Lord, I pray that those of us who might be suffering, Lord, that you would bring them into community. You bring them out of isolation. Lord, I pray that you would keep us prayerful that we would uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Lord, I pray that your presence and your power 
and the reality of it would be explosively at work in our lives. Lord, I pray that as Christians that we would unite around this common posture of weakness, that we wouldn't try to embrace the world's power. We wouldn't try to be powerful like the world, but we would embrace the weakness that comes with being Christians. And so, Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.